Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Andreas Klinger, former founding team member with me at Product Hunt, now thinking about remote and distributed work at AngelList, as well as Matt Mullenweg, co-founder and CEO of Automatic and WordPress. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Hey, thanks for having us. Awesome. We're here to talk about- Ironically, in person. Yes. <laughs> Very ironic indeed, because the the topic of choice for today is distributed work. And you guys have been thinking about this for, for quite a long time, especially you, Matt. Matt, how did you first get into the idea of distributed work? And when did you know that this was going to be something not just unique to you, but fundamental to everyone? The roots for us were really in open source. You know, most open source projects tended to be things- where people collaborated online and worked together uh, all over the world, you know, going back to Linux or GNU or any of that stuff. So kind of call it 80s. When WordPress started, it followed that model. And then when the company started automatic about a year and a half, two years later, it made sense to just keep working with the people who I had already been working with for a few years and I knew were amazing. Where it really stuck for me that we were going to stick, uh, stay with this model was when every other startup founder I knew was having a hard time hiring and we weren't. So it, I was kind of conflicted between like telling everyone they should do this and like trying to keep it secret so we can continue to hire the amazing people all over the world. And you were having an easier time hiring both because you were, you know, finding people that people weren't finding and or because they wanted to join a team that accepted distributed work. Yeah. I think it just fundamentally, if you're fishing in the small pond of the Bay Area versus the ocean of the rest of the world, the other 7 billion people, you, you're just going to have more access to people and vice versa. Yeah. And Andreas, what's, what's your background and how did you get into this step? I, I actually looked this up before and it turns out like pretty much every company and project that did was actually remote, even though I didn't realize back then it was just like normal way of working. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of engineers, actually, I think most notably like together when we uh, were at Product Hunt, was kind of like starting at this side project. I think you and me didn't really know if we will get a salary and this kind of stuff like early on. And then later on, we decided to keep it distributed, if you remember. And then when we actually had like had first investments, I, just, I still remember like a bunch of VCs telling us like, hey, now you have investment. Now you can get an office, get everybody to San Francisco and finally become a real company. <laughs> and I was like... Thank you for your money. Thank you, not for the rest. <laughs> I don't want to give the money to landlords. Yeah. Right. Totally. So why is this such a controversial idea? Is it? <laughs> well, some people are dubious. Some people say, no, you got to build a company in San Francisco. You got to be here. One of the best articulations I've heard of why you shouldn't do this is, you know, look at the great tech companies of the past 20 or 30 years, you know, from Oracle and Microsoft to maybe more recently Facebook's Slack, wherever it is, even Slack which makes distributed work tools. Just built this beautiful, I'm sure very expensive, 10-story office in San Francisco. So what do you know that all of them don't know? And why should you try to do something differently if there's this model that's proven to work over and over time with you know world-changing companies? And uh, I think that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> so, and so what do, you say, what do you know that they don't know? I think what's different is these distributed-first companies are being built with a different set of talent than are building these other companies. So it is true that when the people from Microsoft all went to Google and did it all over again, then the people from Google all went to Facebook and did it all over again. Like, you know, there was some uh, repeating the same playbook, 
with some of the same folks that they'd worked with for many times before. And you can see that all over people's resumes, you know, kind of bouncing between the same set of companies and a few tech clusters, you know, Seattle area, Bay Area, a bit of Boston, you know, a bit of New York now. And uh, the distributed companies are that I think are replacing these older ones are really drawing from worldwide talent that probably hasn't done it before. Although that is starting to shift now where you see people who are have been experienced and just don't want to go to Cupertino or Redmond or Mountain View anymore. Now start to leave the giants and go to startups and younger companies that are distributed first. If distributed companies aren't the future, wh- why would that be? Why wouldn't it play out that way? I do believe more distribution is the future. So I'll say why it's not right for every company or every set of people. And that would be like some leaders and some managers just aren't as comfortable working this way. By the way, some individual contributors prefer going to an office. So those are great reasons to join one of those companies. And luckily, there's probably many decades of companies running that way. But I think a lot of people are starting to do the opposite. There's a great uh, Twitter thread the other day where it was like, it's going to be hard to even recruit people. Like so many people are now searching for jobs that allow them to be distributed or remote or work from home vast majority of their time. That's just the new normal. There's a study by, like a survey by Stack Overflow that more than 50% of candidates nowadays expect and prioritize job offers that are remote enabled at least. So it's becoming the, the norm for a lot of at least engineers. Right. Matt, when did you start building uh, this way? A decade ago, longer? Uh, it would have been about 2003 when WordPress started. What do you know now that you wish you knew then about building distributed teams? Or how has your thinking evolved? Or what have you changed your mind on? I don't know if this is specific to distributed, but we definitely underinvested in growth and training, particularly of leadership, for a very, very long time. until relatively recently. And just seeing the returns, although coaching and other things can seem pretty expensive, the returns on it are basically like your company becoming more effective. So it's super worth it. The big thing that's changed over those years is just the tools have gotten so much better. You know, it used to be hard to find Wi-Fi. <laughs> you know, there was no LTE. There was no iPhone. There was no, we used IRC instead of Slack or Matrix or whatever the new tools are. So it just, it really gets easier every single year to do this. The other thing that we have, I think, kept constant, but sometimes need to rediscover is the importance of in-person time. So just because you're a distributed doesn't mean you should never get together because there are certain things. We're still fundamentally human animals, and there's a trust that gets built when you break bread together, when you, you know, yeah. get to know someone's you know, way they work, the things that are kind of the high bandwidth interactions that only happen in person. Yeah. I, I remember like the first time when we got together as product hunt in yeah. San Francisco and I actually met you the very first time yeah. and we have been like chatting in Slack on and off like literally 24 hours yeah. every day beforehand. And I didn't know if I'm supposed to hug you or shake your hand <laughs> or wave from afar. I was kind of like a right, right. little bit different, you know what I mean? Yeah. But like getting this social connection is super important. I also strongly believe uh, distributed work isn't right for every kind of moment in a company, uh, like I'd say in a product life cycle. So for example, I strongly believe that innovation very often is a little bit easier in person. So for example, if you need to do like a major pivot, it's easier if you get like product people together in front of a whiteboard and just discuss it because there's a lot of nuance lost in a hangout call, at least in my opinion. And a lot of people who tend to be a little bit more quiet are even more quiet if somebody's talking in a hangout and just like shut in a little bit. But on the other hand, in my opinion, iteration is by far easier remote. So if you can actually optimize your own day, your own productivity for your own needs, 
uh, you turn out to be like just more productive in the end. So as you said before, like there needs to be like this rethinking of like having conscious awareness about in-person time, like to actually meet. Yeah. It actually reminds me, you can go historically, people have been collaborating remotely since the invention of mail, you know, chess by mail. <laughs> if you read the letters between like Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot or the Hamilton biography, he talks about the letters that's going around. I mean, the, there was a lot of intimacy that would develop between people who might not see each other for years. And the sort of ping time of these letters was, you know, weeks or months. Um, so you can develop. It is kind of strange. You know someone so well and you've never met them before in person. Is, um, are there sort of major schools of thought within distributed, you know, sort of literature of distributed work that sort of contradict each other or, Hey, we believe it's this, this is the best way of doing distributed work. Almost like Keynesian versus Milton Friedman economics. <laughs> is, there, is there that type? Or are we still so early in building the templates and literature that all same team? It's definitely, definitely a lot. I started working on a book about this cool. and going to be launching a, a blog and podcast soon to wow. complement it. So there are some really interesting models. So I'm doing some research, for example, Envision which is a super successful company that's distributed, keeps everyone on East Coast hours. So they say you can live, you can be anywhere in the world, wherever from anywhere, but you have to work East Coast hours, which effectively limits it quite a bit. So really, actually not as much as you would think. You have all of North and South America, which is Europe until Eastern Europe. Africa as well a bit. Could a bit, you know, like, although although you start to get to the point where people are making probably some serious yeah, social right. or lifestyle mm -hmm. trade-offs yeah. mm -hmm. to work those kind of East Coast hours. It is, you know, I think an important thing to remind, that I remind myself of, that even though you, as someone at a distributed company, might have a ton of flexibility in your day, your spouse might not, partners, your rest of your family, kids, like, they're on... Probably a more traditional schedule. As long as many distributed schools I know about that you can send elementary kids to. Yeah. <laughs> so, Those actually exist. Ah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so Envision is doing distributed but synchronous. Trying yeah. to all work. It's probably a, a good school of thoughts. Yeah. But also when you dig in, there's a lot of organizations that have been distributed for a long time. Part of the reason I came across uh, General uh, Ann Dunwoody's work and uh, ended up recruiting an automatic board was when researching distributed, it turns out like, Military, massively distributed. Yeah. <laughs> and then totally. that kind of led me to learn about logistics, but led me to learn about yeah. Anne's work. So there's, um, lots and lots of examples. You think of any like widely distributed Salesforce. The funny thing was like, I also had a ton of investors being like, Oh, this isn't going to work. Especially imagine 2003 to 2008, the version of that. But then you talk to them and it turns out they're not in their office all day. Mm -hmm. Right. They're out meeting with companies. They're traveling to board meetings. They're, they're actually remote many, many hours out of their day. I'm actually really curious. Maybe y'all are going to do this, like totally blowing up that sort of Monday partner meeting model and everything else. That's like so very effective. And you see that if someone's done this their whole career, when they go to like, when they go from Kleiner to something else, like they're going to take that model. But I'm so curious what the replacement of that is. Like what VC is going to be able to move that much faster because they don't have to wait for that weekly Monday meeting, which by the way, stops during the summer. Yeah. <laughs> Any other holidays. Totally. So like, you know, that responsiveness, I think that's uh, what disrupts things. Yeah, it's funny. We have a 24-hour rule that someone can propose a deal and, and everybody else asynchronous has to respond within 24 hours. And sometimes the uh, – it is interesting. People often use the Monday meeting actually as a like a, a way to prolong the the decision. Like, hey, I'll, uh, I'll have to get back to you. So it sort of serves as a front which I just gave away. Um, but then also as a, uh, also as a make sure <laughs> as a forcing function that, Hey, we had, we need to decide this by Monday because that's the last time we're going to, we're going to meet. 
It's, it's interesting. I think there is a Conway's law that work expands to fulfill yes. the deadlines or mm-hmm. meeting times or things like that. Yeah. I've been minorly obsessed with this inside automatic recently where like when we talk about projects in terms of quarters, guess what? They seem to take quarters. And so I'm like, okay, if we're planning out the year, let's break it down by week. So like which weeks we plan to accomplish on these things. And it kind of untethers it a little bit. Yeah. Let's say you weren't giving up on the, the talent side. Go back to this envision idea of, of synchronous. Uh, you weren't giving up talent by saying everyone had to work, work East Coast hours. Would that be preferable? How do you think about synchronous versus asynchronous? I know Jason, someone, 37 Signals. Jason Freed. Yeah, he's written a lot, of, I think, about the perils of Slack or just like constant mm-hmm. pinging. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, how, how do you think about synchronous versus asynchronous work? Synchronous is powerful, right? There, It can be that delay. So to really embrace asynchronicity, I think that you have to plan for it and think about it. It's deliberate to do that kind of relay race baton handoff. Um, we do try to keep teams... Uh, within sort of time zone ranges of like five to eight hours, uh, time zone differences. That's mostly for the things that we want them to do synchronously. Like say have a, at least a weekly meeting where everyone's in it doesn't end up being in the middle of night for someone. So that kind of time zone spread helps a lot. But I think it is very true that you can get very lazy with things like Slack, which I'm actually, I think a lot about how in a fully distributed organization is Slack a net increase the productivity or a net decrease. And I think it's about how you use the tool. The tool itself is, of course, agnostic. But i um, been considering a lot at Automatic, like encouraging people to not sign in this snack for at least half their day wow. so that they can really kind of have that uninterrupted state to work on whatever the most important thing is. Because it is so tempting and so easy to respond as soon as someone contacts you. And there's not good methods yet of sending a message and sort of prioritizing it. You know, I'd love to be able to say, I'm sending you this message and it can be responded to any time in the next week. And because Slack kind of really just copies the IRC model, everything's in order. So there's not like a good way for that to stay in someone's, at the top of someone's queue, but sort of with a due date almost. You almost want, that's why I've been starting to use personally a bit more tools like Asana. Right. Mm-hmm. Also, like the summary function is kind of missing. So you have like a long Slack discussion going on, but if you actually need to stop, stay up to date, that's like the most horrible format you can have. It can take a ton of time. Yeah. But yeah. that's true. Even like we use a system internally called P2, mm-hmm. which is, is, think of it a little bit more like a, we use it instead of email. So there's no email inside of automatic. And P2 is totally asynchronous and can be threaded, which makes things kind of easier to jump in on later. And I still, it can be overwhelming, the volume of stuff that gets created. Because now we have five, 6,000 P2 posts and comments per week, wow. you know? So it really starts to add up. It's fascinating. It feels like almost every larger distributed team has such tool. Mostly, like many of them built on their own. Like GitHub has their own tool. You have famously P2. There is a lot of other companies like that pretty much like did this kind of tool and even tried to spin it out. Like Doist, for example, with their tool. Mm-hmm. Why isn't there like one player who actually nails this? <laughs> My take on that is that none of the tools that have been released can integrate with everything yet. So it's like so too that's specific. Why people end up building their own. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also a shame on us for not productizing P2 more because it is totally mm-hmm. open source and built on WordPress in theory. Customize right. it 100%. But we just haven't been focused on that as an individual product. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a full team on it for probably five years. Wow. How do you split here between Slack and P2? Like, what kind of stuff goes into P2? Again, things we're working on. Uh, retention policies, right? It's kind of best practice to not keep everything forever. 
But P2, I'm pretty comfortable keeping forever because I feel like that's kind of the expectation people have for posting to these things. But Slack, I'd like to start to expire. Might be long expiration, but let's say three years. But to really kind of emphasize to people also that if this is something that needs to be around forever, let's P2 it. Don't uh, keep it on this ephemeral messaging platform. Right. That makes sense. Mentioned in the Envision model is in terms of synchronous, asynchronous. Are there other companies or other models that are different from what you're doing within distributed work or, or even broader within distributed work? What are the, the arguments or tensions or trade-offs that certain people believe this, certain people believe this is the best way? I think the best argument is that, you know, people get a lot done when they're in the same room. And I think the best counter argument is people distract each other when they're <laughs> in the same room and open offices have a ton of documented downsides. And, right. You know, you go to meetings at Google and people are one building over yeah. they're doing it on video because they don't have time to get in between the buildings. So at what point should Google keep investing hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to building out this campus that it's hard to get in between <laughs> even right. the buildings, you know? And there's every version of this. You can go vertical, right? Mm-hmm. And people are waiting for elevators so long that it's hard to get to meetings in time. I've been at meetings at Amazon like that where elevator at sort of peak lunchtime, it's like a 10 and 15 minute movie to get one. All of a sudden, like we're running up the stairs and not be late for this meeting I had at 1 p.m. There's like a big, a big question. Like if, like as you said before, like if remote is actually a binary decision or if it's actually like a slider and actually everybody's already working remote. The only question now is like, how much? <laughs> so is it like only on your way to work, you're checking email or you're actually sitting in an office and everybody you need to work with is sitting in a different room in a different floor, as you just said. So maybe it's like the question is no longer like, are you going to work remote? Just the question is like, how much of the positive effects can you actually use of them? I think it's the opposite that whatever needs to be in person should really justify itself. What, let's make it prove from kind of first principles why we need to be in the same place at the same time for this. And what are those things? Is it well, conflict mediation maybe? <laughs> and then also, you know, maybe coming up with something new or pivoting or what are the things that should be in person? So like to, to, to your point before, there's, it has more to do sometimes when people want to have everybody together with the manager, mm-hmm. something like that. I, I experienced a few moments in my past where as a like product manager, team lead, you kind of, in a tense moment, almost feel like you're the only one really worrying about this kind of stuff. And it's almost like, how can you get more people involved? And like your human intention is like, let's get everybody together and like freak out together about this, you know, (laughs) which is literally the most unproductive thing you could come up with. But it's kind of like a human need almost, right? So um, I personally have seen like a lot of moments where it's better to have people together for this kind of stuff. Sometimes it's because the manager feels like they need it, but like also very often, especially when it comes to product work, it's just more productive to be closer together for like the little nuanced stuff that just gets lost otherwise. I think that it's, it's a form of lazy management mm-hmm. for exactly. attention or synchronization yeah. through physical co-presence. Yes. And there's distributed ways to do this too. Like I've seen it before, uh, where like a big enterprise client wants everyone on the phone call during a certain event, like the Super Bowl or something like that. Just so they're on the hook. Um, but that is so many other ways to accomplish the same things. And so if you're kind of like forcing accountability or presence or attention through being in the same room, it's probably another issue. Like if your conference calls suck because everyone's checking their email, like solve that. <laughs> don't, don't just force everyone to not check their email by putting them in a room where you can like kind of supervise them like they're in elementary school. Like in my experience, most problems we associate to like distributed work 
or have actually more to do with like how we manage knowledge workers, like how much we're willing to actually systemize our trust and give like authority to people, how much we're willing to actually define the goals and this kind of things and like just plan stuff properly, for example, or at least define exploration expectations properly. And in my experience, like co-located teams tend to have they monkey patch in a way these problems, these process problems they have just with more meetings. So like, actually, we should have done discussed this at the weekly meeting, but we didn't because nobody prepared for the meeting, you know? So let's just like talk this now. Or we have like this problem, everybody stop what you're doing, let's just discuss this now, which is a thing every engineer hates, <laughs> but it's completely the default monkey patch for every process problem you have. I make it explicit, Amazon yeah. style, where you say the first 10 minutes is everyone reading this thing. Yes. We're all going to read it together, and then we're going to maybe consider it for a few minutes, and then we're going to talk about it. But I think that is... You know, if you think of why meetings, we could do a whole podcast on why meetings <laughs> are bad. But so much of it is people are just reacting. You know, you're getting information, you're reacting to it in real time, which is not our best mode. Like really for a lot, we should be considering, we should be playing around with different ideas. We should maybe have some different discussions, but not just purely reactive. It's been something I've been working on a lot is just trying to get out of uh, this mode where I'm presented with something and make a decision immediately, right? Because you can do that. That's probably means that maybe we should have done that in a different way. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah. I failed right. preparing for something without getting into all the reasons why means are bad. <laughs> what, what, we, there's so many. What, what is the criteria that should be met for a meeting to be crucial in the first place? Like I personally uh, judge meetings by the decisions made in this meeting. And very often in a lot of meetings I've been to, it's not that many. And uh, the thing is, like, when you are distributed and you sit in front of your computer and hang out, and it's like forty-five minutes. Forty-five minutes is really exhausting for a hangout. It's really like, like it strains like everything. You're exhausted afterwards. Forty-five minutes in a person meeting, when you're just like sitting, laying back, checking your iPhone in between, that's like nothing. You can do three hours of that if you need to, right? <laughs> so a, a lot of it has to do with just, uh, like, in, at least for me, like with remote work is thinking about this stuff more co uh, co consciously because it's just more expensive, like expensive to the human being, like sitting there for like, like imagine having a hangout call for three hours. Like that's your day. Like you, you, like I'm wasted afterwards usually, you know? <laughs> I think it's, you know, when it's very explicit, mm -hmm. what the desired outcome is. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you talked about action items or yes. decisions. I think honestly, information sync can be a good use of a synchronous meeting. Meaning like, yes, we could all read the document, but if I could ask questions in real time, Someone else might have the same questions or like you can have a confirmation around the information, which can make it a lot richer. You can dive in in real time. But that doesn't always happen. You know, how many times are you like you ask a question and it's like, I, I don't know, got to follow up on that or we got to go back and do a data request or something like that. So we just take so much about work for granted and we do it because that's how we did it in a previous job or we do it because that's, you know, kind of brute force is the problem. And I kind of, sometimes I wonder like how much more could we impact the world? Like all of technology, we just got better about some of these things that we just have just been doing the same way. And we're like the buggy whip makers and we're riding around on horses. What are other things you think we take for granted that maybe 10 years from now might be seen as old, old fashioned or ridiculous? Calendaring, you know, stuff being on the hour and being in 30 minutes or 55 minute chunks. Yeah. That sort of stuff. How might we do that differently? you could be more explicit about how long something actually takes and a way to get people to join something without requiring as much scheduling. Some of this gets better, but it's still pretty messy. 
I think that there's something that's going to happen around asynchronous voice communication. It's actually pretty powerful. And if you kind of go back, you can go historical, how like law firms or like Goldman Sachs would use like voicemails as like its own system that would be like sending emails to each other, but voice actually a really powerful concept. And you see people starting to do this now with Voxer or Telegram voice messages or other things that aren't really enabled by any of the workplace tools yet. They're more on the social messaging tools. I think it's actually pretty powerful because one of the biggest downsides of text is I can send a sentence and someone can really read the worst into it. You know, we talk a lot about uh, assume positive intent or assume good intent, you know, and if they're nervous or tired, they might read. I really misread messages all the time. When there's power dynamics, if you're getting a message from the CEO and maybe you're like three skip levels below that, oh, that's scary. Like, where if there were a tone of voice attached to it, emojis only go so far. <laughs> <laughs> you, you would you would kind of know the context. Also, like, it's for a lot of things, it's just a very good way to explain stuff. In distributed teams, like, demo videos are just like a gold mine. Like, if, it is, if a designer really wants to get across a change they need, like, making a small, quick prototype and explaining it in a video, that's like, like, gold. Yeah. Pure gold. I love that. And there's also, it can be more efficient, right? So for example, I listen to a lot of things sped up, 1.5x, 2x. Yeah. Telegram voice actually has a new thing that lets you listen to everything at 2x. So someone might take a minute to send the message. I can listen to it in 30 seconds. And that's much obviously better right. than if totally. we're talking, like someone can't speak to it. You know, yeah. I, I don't I, know how to do that. I've had the urge in, in meetings, maybe even Monday partner <laughs> meetings to be like, hey, 2x. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think listening to podcasts sped up, like definitely kind of spoil you. A yeah. Little bit. I wonder how many people are listening to this sped up right yeah. now. Right now. I'm actually surprised how slow your voice is. Huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, it's interesting talking about calendaring for a second. I remember the old Mark and Jason blog post. You might have wrote this like a decade ago. His personal productivity tip was to not schedule anything. So he could basically just do whatever he wanted to be doing at that given moment. And uh, if someone reached out to him, he would say, hey, maybe try me on Tuesday. Maybe I'll be free and uh, we'll see what happens. That makes me sort of think of, are you familiar with House Party? What Meerkat turned into? You sort of just turn it on and maybe your friends were there. And if they were, then you started talking. And if not, then they weren't. I wonder if there'll be some enterprise version of that where you just sort of, <laughs> like you don't have to coordinate. You just, hey, are you on? And if so, let, let's think about something really quick. In a yeah meeting kind of way. I don't uh, know. Well, Mark's that's that's a position of incredible privilege. Of too. course, mm -hmm. yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, you can do that when yeah. you're the boss. Yeah, when you I, create I, Netscape, then you. I notice yeah. how the bigger your net wealth is, the less things you have in your calendar. Apparently, right? Yeah, the old Warren like Buffett. Like down to uh, yeah, Buffett was it, like very definitely nothing. yeah something I I idolize and yeah. aim towards. And you know, I think the mistake that happens to almost everyone, like when they first get an assistant or something like that, is you end up really overscheduled. Right. Because all of a sudden, everything's just... Yeah, I don't know why people have their assistants, you know, book their calendar. Well, because that, that going back and forth on six emails is just so soul-sucking. <laughs> totally. So let's say I'm a CEO trying to grow and, and scale a team, and I'm all sold on distributed work. And now it's more more a matter of how. You know, do is my sales team on site, am I engineering to remote? Or what are sort of the different trade-offs as we're building, as building out teams in terms of where on the spectrum we should be in terms of distributed versus you know. like Matt you had like an office in San Francisco at some point mm -hmm. uh, what was your thinking back then to start it and like what was the thinking to close it was it like becoming like a hybrid thing or like why did you actually end up closing it yeah well we started it because we had a first it was just a desk you know then we kind of expanded a bit I think the 
we assumed that we'd still have about 10% of the company in San Francisco. So we were just kind of mapping that out. Turns out that has remained kind of true, like 5 to 10%, but it's in the Bay Area. And it turns out those folks don't want to commute to San Francisco. <laughs> so we used it a lot for events. That stopped happening. We didn't need to host events as often and um, board meetings and investor meetings and stuff. So where it grew to is we locked in a pretty good lease on a 15,000 square foot space. But kind of where we ended up was only five people were going in there regularly. So really, they should have just lived there because they had 3,000 <laughs> square foot each. <laughs> we locked in a low rent, but I think it was like 2017 when to stay there, would the rent would have gone up quite a bit. Would have been millions of dollars per year to stay there. So we went to zero and it was totally fine. We got the five people, some WeWork desk, which by the way, ends up being super expensive. I'm shocked <laughs> by how expensive WeWork is. And actually, the thing we're doing right now is we got an inexpensive space in the mission that we're going to open back up. And the reason I'm doing it is for investor meetings, for board meetings. Like those, it's just hard to raise hundreds of millions of dollars in a coffee shop. <laughs> like I've, I've had those meetings and especially in San Francisco, like I'm talking to an investor about a large, potential large investment, right. things like that. Some, investment banker guy walks up like it's like oh this is uh probably not ideal (laughs) (laughs) that's funny so it is nice to have a space but i think of it more like a a glorified conference room Mm -hmm. or executive briefing center than actually a place that's designed for people to go every day so it's very very different and we also found something that's literally an order magnitude cheaper so i could see keeping that you know we could spend this amount of money for a nice place to meet in san francisco indefinitely so it's not going to be one of these things where we're planning for a certain growth or something and then you don't meet it. I mean, how many times do we hear a new office is built out and then the company already fills it up by the time it's finished? So the real estate is just so inefficient because the lead times, everything. Yeah. So silly idea based on what you said in terms of, you know, or maybe it's a silly idea in terms of the people should have lived there. <laughs> Will there be companies offering co-living, co-work? I know, you know, startups do it when they're super small or some do, but could, are there any big start, uh, big companies doing that, or could you see that ha- being a thing? I can imagine it. I think it's not something we do culturally here that much <laughs> anymore. But I can imagine this in Asia really very well. But as there's things a lot like of, common become more popular, I think there's like a few, a few cases where startups pretty much said like there's this intense deadline in like whatever four weeks, everybody sleeps in the office. <laughs> I I don't want to go on the record, but I know of startups in Asia that did that. Yeah, do you think it's too crazy, Matt. I think it's just a good thing to decouple. Yeah. You know, San Francisco is actually fantastic. I love it here. If you want to live here, you should live here, but you shouldn't be forced to live here because you work. So if you can just decouple those things more, I think it just provides people a lot more agency, a lot more freedom that then they can really prioritize the things that are most important to them. And it turns out we have a ton that's important to us outside of work. Yeah. And so if you can, and if, and we all know it, that when, if you get your family stuff, your personal stuff all really locked in, yeah. guess what? You work that much better. That's the idea that these companies kind of did halfway by having their laundry, the massages, the gyms, et cetera, on site. They're trying to make your personal life a little bit better so you can work better. But it turns out there's a whole world focused on those things. <laughs> there's places I can get my hair cut and do laundry better than I can at the office. Right. Yeah, it is interesting. I do wonder why people haven't experimented with like dorms, you know, recent college grad engineers who might miss that camaraderie experience. Um, and they, they do it every... In every other element except the except living, but I wonder if that's well. We work as we live, right? Google has a ton of corporate. Every company has a ton of corporate apartments. So they move people to sometimes temporarily. I guess people aren't allowed to sleep in the Google parking lot anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, 
By the way, Congress does this too. A ton of Congress people sleep in their office. Wow. And use the Congress gym. It was kind of a funny, because they were making fun of Paul Ryan famously does this. They were saying he's trying to cut benefits, but he he lives in public housing. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. How should I think about which which types of teams it's okay to be distributed versus versus not? Or what are the trade-offs as we... Well, we haven't talked about the obvious. Like if you're building something physical fashion, maybe things where you're dealing with physical goods, that's the method of collaboration. You probably need to be in the same place, at least the people working on that. I guess that's worth mentioning since we kind of have assumed everything. We've really been talking about more like information products, internet-based things. You know, within teams, are there certain teams that it's more costly to keep remote or at Product Time, for example, we had engineering team totally distributed, but sort of community team in the beginning was in San Francisco and then expanded. In the community team in the beginning was you. Me and Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But core like ops, you yeah. know, it, it was sort of engineering remote, everything else mm-hmm. on team. So the, my, my personal take on this, like, I don't think there's a specific kind of work that's better remote or not remote. Like as long as it's like digital knowledge yeah. work, the question is rather what is the overall setup? Is it like fully distributed? Like everybody is distributed? Is it like one headquarter and everybody's like remote first? Right. So like being very aware of the remote and communicating in a remote friendly way. Or do you have like satellite offices? Like, do you have a set second office in, in Eastern Europe where you have most of your development going on? You know, or like just everybody's in the same place, co-located. That's all of these are fine. Also, maybe you have like one big office and a few people are remote. Yeah. In my experience, that tends to be the worst setup, like this yeah. kind of hybrid setup. Like if you. It's not uh, a true hybrid. It's more like second class citizens. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Like, like my strong opinion is that in a remote team, you need roughly five X to process. So you, if you're like five people, you roughly pretend like you're 20, 25 people. Like you do crazy things like schedule meetings, <laughs> actually be on point, have a meeting agenda, like all these things that you wouldn't do necessarily if you would be like five people in a garage, but you do in a remote team. But if you have one large office somewhere and then like a few poor souls somewhere else, who kind of have this expectation of like better processes, stuff written down up front or like stuff written down in general, communication <laughs> being online and not like yeah. at the water cooler. This kind of setup tends to be absolutely horrible for those people. I would agree with the multiplier with the caveat that mm-hmm. it decays as you get larger. So if you're a thousand mm-hmm. people, you don't need to run it like 5,000. <laughs> it's probably something that <laughs> like, logarithmic. Yeah. yeah it, you know, probably above 50. Yeah. Every company that's over a hundred people is distributed. They just pretend they're not. Right. You know, Google has so many offices, so many buildings, so many mm-hmm. everything. Being multiple floors of the same building. As soon as you can't all fit in a room mm-hmm. every day, all the time, mm-hmm. you're distributed. You're just pretending you're not and you probably have crappy processes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some other unique, so we've talked about the unique uh, opportunities in terms of finding talent all over the world, in terms of giving that talent better lifestyle, more flexibility, less distractions. What are, what are some of the unique challenges or what unique preparation should I do as a CEO building a distributed team? Or unique things I should be thinking about that might not be top of mind? I think you have to put yourself in the shoes of someone joining and someone who's not there with you. It's one of the hardest things to do as a manager is like how all the information in my head, how should anyone else know that? Like if someone new was joining, maybe I have high expectations of them. How valid is it that they would have been able to get to the same place that I'm at through reading things or consuming things, whether that's video or text or a field guide or whatever it is? That becomes, if you're able to do that right, is a huge competitive advantage. Like so many companies, I think new hires are really wasted because their first year is ineffective. Guess what? Because all the, you know, all the co- collaboration was on email that they don't have access to before joining, like, you know, because things aren't documented. Um, if you can get that right, wow, it's, you can be a lot more effective. 
And then, and that's the only way you're going to compete with companies that are more mature and nowadays more wildly profitable. Like how is any startup supposed to be with a company that does three, four, five hundred thousand in profit per employee? Well, it turns out that you can be more agile. You can work in a way that they're not able to. And that's why, um, I think this is the, the big opportunity as we get more consolidation of power and resources among the big five, big 10 tech companies. The only way that anyone's going to be able to disrupt them is by building in a different way. You're not going to be able to slug it out. Facebook's maybe the last of the companies that was be able to be created in that generation in that way. Like really going head to head brute force against, you know, Google's and Microsoft's of the world. All the ones that are going to replace that are going to need to get, take a completely different model to work to really be able to compete. And we see this Snapchat is probably a good example was just after that window. You know, they tried to do this slug it out head to head thing a little bit different and it's from LA, but that doesn't really matter. It's like San Francisco South <laughs> and failed. I think failed to get the talent and the momentum and the everything else to stay ahead of the fast followers. How, how should I be thinking about hiring differently or running recruiting processes differently, building a distributed team? Or even just hiring process. I have an HBR article about this. Uh, it's a few years old now, but it's actually very similar to the process that we still do today at Automatic. And it's basically just, it's, I think it's fine for in-person companies as well, trying to replicate the work. You know, so much of what I saw in in-person interviews, the whiteboard exercises, the like, you know, 20 interviews, or even if there's five people grilling the person during the day, like so much of that was so inefficient. And companies like Google got to this where they did the studies. I love the Laszlo Box book, uh, Work Rules. It's amazing. They're like, yeah, we found after four or five, there's a distributing or a diminishing marginal return to like additional interviews. So those types of things, I think you could just be a lot more efficient in finding out how someone really does the work you're going to do. Yeah. It's kind of fascinating now that there's like almost like it's industry in the industry popping up, helping people prepare for tech interviews. Because they're like so far uh, removed, removed from what you learned in the university and so far removed from what you actually do in professional. So mm -hmm. you kind of need somebody to guide you, like to, to help you learn for those. So for example, if remote is a little bit more extreme, actually, in my experience, because when I hire in San Francisco, I have like a little bit more signals I can use, like universities I might know and this kind of stuff. If I hire, like, let's say globally, there's a high chance that I've never heard of the university and I need to Google and I have still no <laughs> strong opinion. <laughs> There's a high chance uh, that the person might not even have gone to university and right. has worked for some uh, companies I've never heard of. So, like, what signals do I end up using? And they might not be experienced with typical algorithmic challenges that are nothing else than computer science homework, like like uh, coming straight off university. So they've never done that, but they might be the perfect employee for what I actually need. So how do I get through that? You know, like and as you said, like doing real world examples, like I like a lot of pair programming, for example, or like just hiring somebody as a freelancer for like a first few weeks or month and just like having a defined project working on, um, maybe just take home challenges. Like this kind of stuff is very mm -hmm. common, I would say. Yeah. I mean, we just test for the wrong things. Yeah. Like we interview based on what someone is going to be able to react with. Same way meetings are poor. What we really want to know is how they're going to work. It doesn't, you don't have to like, come up with a bubble sword on the fly or something like that. Like you can Google things. That's why take-home challenges are fantastic because that's kind of what work looks like. It's more of a take-home challenge. Very few jobs require you to be like have perfect information or perfect answers in real-time responses. And so just decouple that. And guess what? It doesn't matter where they went to school. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter what they did before, actually. You know, 
we, what we really want to test for is like ability to learn, communication skills, work ethic, curiosity, taste. Like these things are what really what you're looking for. Everything else is just kind of ephemeral, transitory skills that a good person will be able to learn and pick up, especially given proper mentorship in whatever your company is. Going back to training and everything. Totally. I'm curious, if, of course, as a as an investor, what let's say this this already is the future. This already is the present. It's it, it incre- continues to increase. What sort of second order and third order effects might happen in terms of what new businesses will be built on, on this trend? If we were a VC firm, all three of us thinking about distributed work and what businesses will be built on the back of it, what would our thesis be or where would we be looking? I think you nailed it earlier that a lot of these distributed companies build their own kind of tools. I think it shows that a lot of the existing tools aren't there yet. I think that there is still a lot of headaches around global employment. Yes, the legality of HR, payments. How, did, how many people do you have now? 850. How, like at what point, countries, at what you point know? did you work about not just having everybody as a freelancer permanently? Like, how did you figure this out? Like, how long did this take for you? Um, it's complicated, <laughs> right? <laughs> By the way, it's complicated only in the US. Yeah. We have people in 45 states. Yeah. Wow. It's different laws for every state. Yes. Workers' comp and everything. Yeah. Healthcare, benefits, like. Equity how, globally. How to do these equity rules. Yeah. yeah. We want people to be able to buy essentially restricted stock and automatic. We want to, how do they even pay for that? Mm-hmm. Guess what? You can't sell stock using PayPal. Wow. <laughs> they shut you down. How do, what are wire transfers? Like, all of these things is so much a layer of abstraction on top of that that kind of could provide a common interface to sending someone money, whether they're in Pakistan or whether they're in Alabama, like would be really powerful. I think there will be like a next generation gusto that focuses on global employment, benefits, equity options, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. That makes It's really powerful. I know some companies like uh, Upwork, et cetera, are kind of leveraging some of the work they've done there already but it's um it's a big challenge so that's what i I mean look for that i think there's a ton of opportunities there also just investing in distributed companies i think is pretty powerful it's uh true ventures did really well like automatic was open source and distributed they started to pattern match that a little bit and found some other amazing open source companies including ones that are a little non-traditional like makerbot that uh turned out to apply some of those same things to a new space and That's what it worked really well. Yeah. Do you envision the legality getting any easier over time? Like, is there a YC safe for? I, I think it, it has to. I think it will be a thing that a lot of countries will just try to offer to be more interesting for this yeah. kind of stuff. There's already mm-hmm. countries now that do special laws for digital nomads. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is kind of the touristy version right. of this whole concept. Do you have a lot of digital nomads at WordPress or do you think about that differently at all? We do have a percentage of people that do kind of travel more full time. But it's really hard to. So I would say that one, that probably means you don't have like a lot of family that you're responsible for or people you're taking care of. So tend to be a little younger, tend to be more on the single side or with a partner that can also travel. And yeah, it can be challenging because you, people are expecting you to do the same work. I always admire people to do it though. In fact, we have someone who was in an RV full time, but they got their work done. So. Yeah. Cool. I think there's a, like a split in this scene almost. There's like the digital backpackers more or less yeah. that stay somewhere for like a few days, move on, move on. 
tend to be people who I would say work on their own, have an Instagram account, maybe have like some drop shipping, <laughs> like this kind of stuff, like manage to live off that, yeah. you know? And then there is like more the digital stay mats that they could just like move somewhere, stay for like a month, two months, yeah. maybe. I've heard it called slow mad. It's slow mad. Nice. That's not, that's I nice. Like that. yeah. yeah. That's what I like, by the way, too. It's yeah, great to be too. able to stay someplace a month. You can really learn the place. Right. And probably the reason you're traveling, especially if you're working during the day, you'll want to spread out that exploration over a longer period of time, maybe over a couple of weekends yeah. versus like if you were purely in vacation mode, you could hit all that stuff in like four or five days. Yeah. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Where a couple of places you have uh, slow matted or, or been for an extended period of time? Um, last, well, I guess it was in 2017. I was in Paris for like eight weeks, nine weeks. You know, there's different ways to do it. I will say even with distributed companies, given that the majority of people are probably in one place, it does create a perception issue if you're on the road all the time. And so it's something I've, I've given as advisement to people who worked in distributed teams or distributed companies. Like maybe don't emphasize everything where you are. Even in a place like automatic, it creates kind of like a, I don't know. Yeah, People yeah. might read into like yeah. something being a little bit late or mm -hmm. yeah. something like that. And to and be fair, resentment. it takes a little bit of your focus. Like you need the first week maybe to get into your flow, to be actually proper productive, like to figure out where you work, how yeah, you work. Yeah figure out that you forgot the wrong whatevers, you know, like you need to get them or like this kind of stuff, you know, it needs a good week to kind of get really into the flow. So like if people jump every one or two weeks, yeah. many people manage to manage to do it. Yeah. But like in a team, if you need to really rely on it, like I understand why other people get nervous. Right. I work on it a lot because I, in my role, in addition to everything, like it requires me to be around and the meetups and the WordPress stuff and things like that. So I do a lot. Of, I mean, last year was 377,000 miles. A hundred and something cities, so almost like a different city, unique city every third day. So, but that means I have to work a lot on being able to be in almost any environment, kind of hit the ground running and be productive immediately or figure out how to be productive while offline or things like that. Cause otherwise it just everything would fall apart for me. Right. I think another trend that sometimes gets lumped into Jupiter work is sort of freelancers, flexible work. How do you guys think about that at, at WordPress? Um, the 850 are all. You know, full-time equivalents. And I think that, you know, I just like the development and the rapport and the trust and everything that comes from teams working together really closely for long periods of time. We even think about it internally for like not rotating people between teams too often because you have to rebuild that kind of norming, storming, forming, kind of like the methods that new teams go through to become really effective. So I personally like that. You know, I love that there's now dozens of people that I've worked with for over a decade. And we just have a level of trust built up that we can communicate in a really high bandwidth efficient way. It's also great for when things get tough, you know, because you've built up that kind of relationship and you've invested in that relationship over a really long period of time. This wow. is, by the way, one of the things that to me is super fascinating is a lot of people mention like costs or quality of living or whatever, these kind of things, or bigger talent pool. Like a lot of people forget about retention. Retention's huge. Which is ridiculous. Like if you compare it to San Francisco standards, where it's like, oh, like if you're lucky one and a half years, two years, like something like that, it's, it's, it's absurd. Like the retention in, in good remote teams is just absurd in comparison. Yeah. We're, we're like at a 4% regretted attrition, maybe a little lower. It's, it's really low for other startups, but I don't know how much of that is correlation versus causation. Like it's may, probably not just being distributed. And that's, you know, to get to some of your earlier questions that maybe we didn't address fully well, it's like, it's not just about everyone working from home. There's a lot of other stuff that you need to bundle into that, that is kind of also generally useful. 
And the combination of those, when you get it all locked in, can be super magical. You get these things like amazing retention, great recruiting, all that sort of stuff. But if you did any one of them individually without the others, it might not have the same kind of, uh, what does Charlie Munger call it? The Lollapalooza effects when you get everything going at once? Yeah, I'm, I'm the CEO thinking about distributed work. What are some of the things that I need to bundle in that may not be top of mind? The one thing that comes to me, like, like instantly think about is optimizing for single player mode. That doesn't necessarily mean that nobody works for anybody else. It actually means the opposite. But I think of like one single person can make really fast decisions. Yeah. As soon as they have to require team input output, it gets slow, especially if you're asynchronous. Like it might get really, really slow. Yeah. So the more this person can make their own decisions, the more they know like what are the goals are, like the more it's explicit about like how decisions should be made, how process should be made, how you expect people to stay transparent about what they decided on, the more they know how to just align with what the product manager or the CEO wants to do, the more they can move forward on their own very, very fast. And that's, that has nothing to do with remote work. That's just like knowledge work management. But as that in a co-located team, you can worst case just monkey patch by sitting literally like next to somebody and micromanage them, <laughs> which you can't do in a, a remote team and you most likely shouldn't do in a co-located right. team either. One of the challenging things about writing a book about distributed is so much of it isn't really yeah. distributed stuff. And so trying to find things that are novel that weren't said by Peter Drucker 30 or 40 right. years ago yep. <laughs> yeah. about, you know, how to run companies, how to manage, how to be effective. Yeah. Also, know? also the same is true for tools or processes. Every tool that you have that works really well in a distributed team works really well in a, in any meaningful sized company as well. It's very, very hard to come up with something that's specifically unique to remote. Right. I mean, to that end, Andreas, you know, uh, at Product Hunt, you ran the engineering team, which was what, 10, 15 ish people. Yeah. And then at AngelList, you know, it was sort of s- small independent teams working on individual um, yes. projects. Yeah. Similar to medium, perhaps. What are sort of the trade-offs there? And here's how you think about team size. So personally, for me, management means defining of processes and facilitating com- with communication if processes fail. And leadership is a little bit more this um, understanding the people, their needs, where they want to get into a career, making sure they're motivated, making sure they're happy, and making sure they're aligned, all this kind of stuff. Management uh, is a little bit easier with more people. Leadership is really, really hard and really involved, at least for me. So there's like so many, only so many people I can actually do effect, effective one-on-ones with and like keeping up to date with them and keeping focused with them. So for me personally, there is like a natural team size. And like to me personally, it's around 10 people max for like each person like managing other people. That being said, uh, I don't think of it as managing me if like telling them each step they should do. I think it much more of like making sure they think the same way or like roughly the same way or know at least how I would think about it. They know what we're going after and like being able to actually self-manage. Yeah. Uh, the latest 37 Signals book uh, doesn't have to be crazy at work, I believe it's called. Actually, it has an interesting thing where they try to keep teams pretty small. And so they're like working on something it's like three or four people, I think. And um, I find that interesting. So even though like a uh, manager doing direct reports, I completely agree. Like five to 10 is very much a sweet spot. By the way, that's true for all companies. There is, you, you end up kind of subdividing that a little bit. So I think about the subdivisions. Like, okay, is it three of three plus a manager? Okay, that's a 10 person team. And like, how do you break down the work and really have good accountability and processes and flows there? Yeah. What do, what do you think are mental models that are unique to, to WordPress or automatic or unique to AngelList or product on around distributed work or even just broader uh, team building, company building management? For me, it's honesty with a team, especially 
like you might be worried about stuff. If you have capable people, it's good to openly discuss. I'm not saying freaking people out, but just being sure that everybody's on the same page and like if an honest discussion about any problem that might pop up so that they are again capable of making better decisions. That's something, maybe it's a culture thing for me as like Germanic person, like very reserved, you know, like maybe it's a culture thing. I don't know, but that's something I had to learn. And also I have this tendency of like, thinking very highly of the teams I work with. Yeah. And almost <laughs> the point that I like this is saying like you have to love a team to really like work with them or like really respect them and everything. Like for me personally it's systemizing trust and just being like people like if I hire really intelligent, capable pe- people, the best thing I can do is like let them do what they are best in. And there's no point in me like micromanaging or telling and all this kind of stuff. So like finding out the sweet spot between that is like I think the one that I needed to learn and I'm still learning. The importance of clear written communication. And that includes when you're on a more chat-like tool. It's just as important then. Uh, I read a book, it's a terrible title, but a great book called Nonviolent Communication. And it really made me think like, you know, go back over some conversations I'd had or things like that and see that that didn't go the way I'd hoped and really reread what I had written and saw how maybe it wasn't really clear, wasn't direct enough could have been interpreted in a different way it's super challenging actually so that's definitely something the most modern thing that i feel like we're struggling with which isn't unique to distributed but it is a challenge in distributed just managing distractions and that's you know why is it harder for me to write something write a thousand words today than it was five years ago ten years ago i think it's you know, that we've had 10 years of really smart people working on getting yeah. my attention <laughs> yeah, and developing algorithms and push notifications and everything. Yeah. Like we don't, we don't have great ways for managing those across apps, across services. Funnily enough, as email is an open protocol with my, lots of different clients and things built for it is one of the better places for this, you know, and I've been checking out multi-user email like front app or missive. Missive is pretty cool. It's a small team actually. That, like, okay, this makes it actually a lot more efficient to be able to have this sort of standard input-output protocol that allows me to manage this in a way that I can't manage my LinkedIn messages, my Facebook messages, or my Slack messages for that. You know, I can't give someone a login to my Slack to help me keep up with all the 30 DMs I have. In it's, it's kind of fascinating that there's, like, this, we still use this pattern that, for example, my work email has the same tools as my private email it's the same kind of privacy like i people don't like sharing their work email password <laughs> but if you're like the person like if you're the vp of something and somebody else is going to replace you at some point this person should actually almost like take over your email box in a way right but this is something people currently don't really do or would even think about so like multiplayer email is like something really big still like open to be done in my opinion most of what is a personal email inbox should probably be a shared one or a yes. generic one you know yeah. I have to take the bait because I've also been very interested in nonviolent communication and I'm curious if it should be called you know, compassionate communication or effective <laughs> communication. You mentioned nonviolent communication. Is this a thing? He's, yeah. It's, it's yeah. his thing. It's, yeah. Yeah. Totally. The title is uh, provocative intentionally to show how violent our day-to-day conversation is without even, without even realizing how, how insidious that is. I'm curious, A, what you, what you took away from it and B, one thing I've been asking for myself is where it applies in the workplace and where it doesn't because my understanding is that it's mostly applied you know, when you're prioritizing the relationship and sometimes you're prioritizing outcomes 
ahead of the relationship and you have to fire people and, you know, th- things like that. So I'm just curious what your reflections on that are. I guess I haven't found some place that can't be applied. Guess what? Compassionate or nonviolent communication is really important when you're letting someone go. Super important. This is like a moment in their life, which is going to have a huge impact. And so the best thing you do is be really clear about the reasons, what they can do, you know, all those sorts of things. So, yeah, I haven't yet found where obfuscation right. <laughs> is good. Maybe, maybe if you're a press secretary, <laughs> <laughs> some people will counter and say something like, yeah, we just need results. Like I don't have all this time, but really if you put the time, you prioritize the relationship first and lead with trust, you know, you'll get better work. It's all people at the end of the day. And so if, if you're not treating the people well, the people aren't engaged. If there isn't that trust, trust is a great way to put it. Nothing else is going to happen. Maybe you get sort of a mercenary effect in the short term where you can get some stuff done, but long term you'll be passed by someone or an organization where the people actually care for each other and their customers and everything else. Yeah. I like the way you put it, sort of the carrot stick approach or punishment reward is is very short term. Um, Mm -hmm. It doesn't uh, prioritize the long term. And sometimes short term can be stretched out. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I do believe in building things for the very long term. Yeah. So the last question, you know, I'm a CEO looking to build a distributed team. I hear that, you know, Product Hunt slash AngelList slash WordPress and Vision have distributed teams, but also really amazing culture and community and people who work there love it and, and are best friends with each other and, and work for, for decades. How do I build a great culture on a distributed team? What are things I, I need to do differently or need to make sure that I, I have into account in the same way that I don't know, Keith Raboy talks about PayPal. You know, not being a cult when it first started, or just having such a uh, such a deep commitment to to their their mission. It's good to take like Keith's probably a great example as uh, as like he can articulate really vividly some of what made that maybe early PayPal experience so great, and then uh, take out the component parts. Okay, I would like everyone to be really ultra passionate and aligned around a certain goal. Okay, what are some different ways to accomplish that besides? sleeping under your desk every night or whatever yeah. it is. Like, uh, um, and maybe there are things you want to think about it specifically in terms of keeping people invested. You know, in some ways our trial period, which is, you know, the project someone does before joining, it's not easy. It's hard, but it also means that when people get through it, that they're pretty invested in the outcome. You know, they put a lot of time into it and vice versa. We know that they can do the job really well. So we're at a point where we're both pretty invested in that relationship so there's probably things you might want to think about explicitly and break out. So, but it's, it's hard to find anything that can't be broken out. You know, you want people to really like each other. So there's a ton of ways to do that in person and not in person or periodically a few times a year or things you can do every day. Right. What are the best not in person ways to encourage people to like each other or to build, build bonds? Something I, I work on is, um, non-transactional communication. I think especially, when I do have 30 or 40 messages waiting for me, guess what? Cause our company's 24 hours a day and like this, things like that. And it was in in-person meetings and SF all day. So all of a sudden I'm very behind. It can be easy for me to fall into just a very transactional mode of communication. I think that relationships develop, uh, when you have more, more context, more interest. It's not really something I have to work on. That's kind of what happens naturally when I'm more relaxed and have a little more time with the person, whether that's on a text chat or in person. So 
it's really, I've thought about the meta issue. It's not like I have a post-it on my screen that says, act human, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Remember to blink. It's, a, no, it's more like um, yeah. I try to make more time in the schedule to actually you know, spend more time on each of these things. I find that the connection happens more naturally. So I, it, it ended up being, I thought it was a symptom of me just like being too abrupt or rude. And it turned it out, turned, turned out it was more a symptom of how stretched thin I was. And when I started maybe delegating some more things, hired some more executives, things like that, it created some space for that to improve. Mm -hmm. One thing that managers can take away is, at least what I try to do is it, don't use the one-on-ones for project updates because you have project meetings for that anyway. At least that's how I feel about it. And use the one-on-ones actually to talk about the person and their problems and their needs and their life and like where they want to go in their career because realistically they will join you for a few years, but you're not their whole life. You're not their whole career. So like how do they want to like evolve? Do they want to like specialize in something else? Do they want to focus on something else? All this kind of stuff. And in my experience, this kind of discussions lead to very honest trust hopefully also like to a good culture. And the, the other thing is like, if you have people that sit so far away in a different room in a different continent yeah. and you have like check, check-in points like once a week in a project meeting, maybe yeah. Slack and all this kind of stuff, you need to trust them. And you this is like something they also know and feel and you need to enable them. And that is also like something they know. I personally believe this creates good culture. Everything else, like from the outside, like people being giggly and happy, that falls out of actually feeling useful in your work, feeling that you work on something meaningful and feeling actually that you contribute and that you're not like just one little wheel in like some meaningless machine. So like everything else what you see is usually just the symptoms of doing these kind of things right. Yeah. And at scale, these things really add up. You know, if I can make automatic 20% more effective this year, that's the equivalent of hiring 170 people. Yes. Wow. And you can do your own math on how many tens of millions yes. of dollars that would be. Yeah. Hire those additional people. So I really do believe that it's important to like carve out executive time, mm-hmm. engineering time to yeah. work on these internal processes. One, one thing that would be to me interesting is how do you tactically actually approach hiring? Like, is this something that you mainly do for your network or is this something you mainly do? Like, there's so many remote job boards, obviously. Like, there's even like, like one million candidates on AngelList and like these crazy numbers everywhere, right? Like, how do you uh, automatically like actually approach this usually? It's definitely evolving. I think the thing that companies forget to do is invest in branding and kind of conversion funnels for hires as well. Because I think some of your best source can be people using your products particularly when you get a little more mainstream or something, like have something on the about page of your mobile app that says we're hiring, maybe even list the jobs, have the footer link, have the Easter eggs. We put one in the HTTP headers. So any WordPress.com site you visit, including like TechCrunch, look at the headers. It has a little, it's called x-hacker. If you're reading this, maybe you go to automatic slash jobs, .com slash jobs. So things like that, I think are, are one, a good place to start. The remote job boards and things, We've seen have a low signal to noise ratio because you get people that are primarily looking for a way to work, not necessarily aligned with you as a company. Of course, that's really important. So then the question becomes, how are we getting people excited about what we're doing as a company? So it really comes about that kind of like branding and promotion. It's why I'm doing the book. Not that I have so much time that I, you know, free time I want to write a book. It's because we have a way that we think about the world. One, I want more companies to do. 
And then two, I want people who really resonate with it to know that automatic is one of the places they can do that at. So for people who really love this conversation, where can they learn more about your work, about where they can work, about what, uh, what's, what's next in terms of the blog, the podcast, etc. Me personally, Twitter, Andreas Klinger, first name, last name. Good resources to learn. I personally really like the books by DHH and Jason, as you mentioned before. Unfortunately, are not enough good books on remote work and distributed teams yet. So this is where I also pass on over to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Photomat, P-H-O-T-O-M-A-T-T on Twitter and Instagram. And my blog, if you want to see where I'm going to announce the new podcast, etc., is ma.tt. No com or anything like that, just ma.tt. Check it out. I'm looking forward. I write about these topics a lot. Yeah, good place to check out. Awesome. Kind of old school. You can follow a blog. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, guys. It's been a great It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.